So now here we have the final three reactions to the election. With all these guests, I tried to be neutral if possible and just let them speak for themselves. And I tried to find a diversity of reactions from people or rather reactions from people from a diversity of perspectives. This has been a weird week. And I will admit that I feel like we're in a weird moment. We've got some very small glimpses into what this Trump presidency is going to look like. Basically, all we have are a few cabinet appointments. And I don't know what's coming. It's hard to tell what's smoke and what's fire right now. So all I can do is say I will keep trying to hear people. I will keep trying to reason to the heart of issues. I will keep trying to avoid name calling and painting people with too broad of strokes. I would say that I hope you guys are with me, but you probably wouldn't be listening if you weren't. So rather I'll say thank you for staying with me in that process. This is the final episode of these reaction episodes. And next week we will be back to single topic, single guest, deep dive into the issues. First up is D.L. Mayfield or Danielle. And you'll remember her from her episode talking about living amongst refugees. So go back and check that one out if you haven't listened to it yet. And we tried to get a sense of what her community is feeling after Trump's sort of surprising win. So here's Danielle. All right, Danielle, just give us your basic reaction to this election as a person. Yeah, I would say I am devastated and feeling really shocked and surprised and I guess kind of mad at myself that I never even thought it could happen, you know? <laughs> so Yeah. <gasps> like yeah. you mean that you you weren't paying attention or you you're you are fundamentally misunderstanding people or what do you mean? when you're angry at yourself. Yeah, just thinking like I kept checking like Nate Silver's 538 predictions, you know, the few days before the election and then I'd be like, oh yeah, Hillary Clinton's gonna win in a landslide. So I can't wait for this to be over. Like we'll still have work to do, but you know, it'll be so nice to have it be over. And so as the results started to roll in on Tuesday night, um, I think it was probably around four in the afternoon, I just went to my room and I just started sobbing. <laughs> and... <laughs> I have cried a lot since then. So I, yeah. Now, what about amongst your refugee friends and neighbors? What is the mood like there? Yeah. Um, so actually Tuesday morning, I teach an English class at my daughter's elementary school. And I had decided that we would be discussing the election at least a little bit, um, because a few of the teachers had told me that the kids, specifically the Latino kids at the school, had been really worried and had been talking about Donald Trump a lot. So I thought, okay, maybe this is on the parents' mind. And at this little English class at the school, there's parents from all over the world. Most of them are refugees and immigrants from other countries. And we talked about the election. We talked about emotions. Um, and at that point, I still thought, you know, Hillary was going to win in a landslide. Yeah. And so I was just trying to make people feel better. And they said, like, you know, at home they felt nervous. But at that English class, they were feeling good and they were feeling positive. And, um, you know, everyone told me they liked Hillary Clinton and, um, you know, they didn't like Trump. And 
one of the moms from Mexico was actually telling me that her son was just so, so worried. And she was like, I haven't been telling him to be worried. You know, where did he learn about Donald Trump? Did his teachers tell him? And I was like, I bet it was the other kids. Like, yeah, I don't think it was the teachers. And so things were pretty positive. Then the day happened. The next morning at school, I just tried to find every single mom who was a refugee or immigrant that I could and give them a hug. And um, most of them were doing okay, at least somewhat okay. But um, there was one Somali woman who just wouldn't let go of me. And she just said, I couldn't sleep at all last night. You know, like she just couldn't sleep. She was just so sick to her stomach. Um, And I think for them, especially thinking about their family members who might never get a chance to come over here now, right? That's probably the top of their mind, but also just the fear of getting sent back or the fear of how people will treat them in America. Um, Yeah, they just have a lot, a lot to worry about. Um, Yeah, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk on both sides, you know, the right kind of saying, all right, everybody, calm down on the left, like, it's not going to be that bad. And then some people on the left saying, hey, easy for you to say, you know, especially if you're a white man or something like that, or if you're upper middle class. But it's really hard to put ourselves in the shoes of someone like your friends who were planning to have their family members join them in our nation, and they're not going to be able to come, probably, maybe, or could face discrimination of some sort. I mean, I don't know how likely it is that Trump will try and ban Muslims or register Muslims in the United States. If that stuff happened, then those people are facing an entirely different set of concerns than I'm facing in terms of how it affects me. What else have you heard from that group? And then later we're going to talk about your interaction with your daughter at her school. But I want to stick on the refugees for a second. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I haven't had a ton of, like, in-depth conversations with people about it. Um, I mean, I think overall, there is some resignation. And, you know, there is fear of Donald Trump, but there's also just fear of the general sentiment in America, you know, and the escalation that could happen um, of violence against people. And I tend to work mostly with the women and and Muslim women, and they're just so visible, right? They wear the hijab, and I just worry about them so much. You know, one thing that's interesting, he's not necessarily a refugee, but my brother-in-law is from Sudan. So he's an immigrant here in America right now. And I was like, how is he feeling about this? You know, like, and all along he's been saying that Donald Trump just reminds him of an African dictator. And he's just like, I've lived under them. I survived, like I will survive this. But, um, he's like, he's just eerily similar. Even like he makes threats to execute, you know, his political opponent opponents. He makes threats to, um, send certain people groups away and all this stuff. He's like, yep, that's just textbook. Um, wow. You know, what happened in Sudan. So that's pretty, that's pretty sobering too. Okay. You mentioned to me earlier that you wanted to talk about this experience you had at your daughter Ramona's school. So mm-hmm. what was that experience? Yeah. So the elementary school is a majority Spanish speaking. And then there's about 28 other languages at this school of like under 500 students. So where I live is an amazing place people from all over the world it's refugees get resettled here because of the rent um and so yeah like one of the teachers a 
a few days ago before the election had mentioned how nervous the Latino kids were specifically about Donald Trump getting elected and, um, you know, sending them home or sending family members home. And so I showed up on Wednesday morning just to volunteer in my daughter's class just in case, you know, kids were sad or kids needed an extra presence in the room. Um, And their kids were doing pretty well. I wore all black that day just because that's what I felt like wearing. And actually, a lot of other staff members were wearing all black that day, too, just to kind of show the kids that we were with them. Um, And I was talking to the principal at the end of the day, and I was just like, so how was today? And she said that the mood was really, really somber, you know, almost like somebody had died. Um, But she said that she heard kids telling each other, it's okay, we'll take care of each other. And I think that just gave me so much hope, but also totally broke my heart that these kids don't get to be unaware of the consequences of Donald Trump, right? My daughter doesn't know. Like, I haven't really talked to her about him at all. Just in the past few days have I had to talk to her about it because I just didn't want it to be a reality. Um, But these kids have known for a long time what it means and they're determined to look out for each other and I can't wait for them to grow up and vote (laughs) for for someone better well you know I don't know what the order is going to be on the episode but earlier today I talked with your friend Alan Noble and he was saying that one of the things that made him most hopeful was the pastors of color and women that he works with who are expressing like he's sort of saying like it's time to pass the baton because we white leaders we don't know what this is like to sort of be in any kind of my a minority especially white men and this is maybe another way of looking at that you're talking about these these are refugee kids or immigrant kids who have never been in the majority and they're reassuring each other that like hey, we can take care of each other. It's kind of crazy. I'm, I'm just barely getting my mind around this of like, it might actually be the end of white ascendancy or like sort of white men at the top in terms of the people who really can deal with the world now. I'm, this sounds very melodramatic. Don't, don't take me so literally. But I just sort of mean like, these are questions I've never even had to ask before. I, I've asked them abstractly, but I've never had to confront like, oh, it, it might be someone else's turn to like lead this thing. So I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And for me, it can't happen soon enough. But what I fear is the damage that will be done okay. as these white males try and retain their power like they are going to lose that power (laughs) like they will um and i just fear what's gonna happen um Mm -hmm. as they try and and grasp it and retain it and yeah i mean i was raised you know in a home where my mom thought the end times was imminent (laughs) so i've been really struggling like (gasps) not to go apocalyptic here in my mind um with the donald trump presidency but i was literally raised to be prepared for the end time. So yeah, I'm going back, I'm going back to some of that stuff. And just, oh man, I know, don't even, I can't even go there. I want to go there with you, but like, it's so traumatic for me as well. Like, well, I have a new mantra. Stuff. Okay. My new mantra is I hope I'm wrong. Right. Yeah. There we go. So speaking, let's keep going with this idea of other people come coming to the fore. You mentioned in your interview with me earlier that you are sometimes criticized as being a white girl 
telling immigrant stories or refugee stories and that those people need to speak for themselves. Now that Trump has won, though, like, do you feel either like, you know what, I have a bigger megaphone than they have right now and I need to wield that? Or do you feel like the opposite, more incentivized to bring them forward, kind of urge them forward to speak for themselves? That's kind of a weird question, but... Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. So even like when you ask me questions, how are your neighbors doing? I'm like, I only know the tip of the iceberg. I don't truly know all the complexities of what they're feeling. That is something I hope to explore like in relationship with them. I think um, for me, obviously I would like refugees and immigrants to get their own megaphones. Um, That would be ideal. I think one thing that has changed for me over the past year and like this election of Trump has just crystallized it for me is... Like many, I was raised to be very focused on like relational change. And for me, I always tell people like, yeah, just become friends with refugees and da, da, da. And now I am like, systems have to change. Like systems need to be overhauled. And so, Mm. you know, yesterday I was at a grant writing workshop. Like I'm going to learn how to write and apply for grants because I'm starting, I'm with a few other people, including um, an Egyptian immigrant. We are starting a refugee and immigrant hospitality organization um, that's going to be a nonprofit. And we're going to work towards helping people start um, like hospitality centers for refugees and immigrants all over the city. So we want to do things on a more systemic level. We want to reach more people. Of course, I'm still going to be hanging out at my elementary school and with my neighbors, but it's time to see these kind of movements spread. Um, so I think that's been a huge change for me is I want to see more systemic change, which I think will lead to more people of color and refugees and immigrants um, hopefully being at the forefront of those movements and, and getting to speak more. So it's both. You're, you're saying, I'm going to wield what resources I have now toward this end where they get to have the megaphone. Yeah, I'm going to try. Is there any indication that current refugees will be deported back to their own countries? Or is that not on the table as far as you know? As far as I know, that's not something that could happen. Um, okay. And actually, at this point, I... I only have like briefly seen a few things about like Trump's plan to deport illegal immigrants and all that. And, you know, I was actually I listened to your podcast with Chris Hoke. So part of me is like, well, Trump can't deport people because he's obsessed with making money. But also if those people end up just being imprisoned indefinitely and becoming a part of the American slave system, then that would also make money. So I, so I, I go down these rabbit holes and it's it's not great. Um, all I know is that if it gets to those points, I think white people will need to put in the sweat and the blood and the tears and we will need to be um, protesting and getting arrested, you know, if these kinds of policies are implemented. Um, I think we need to have a plan for how we can align, you know, our actual physical bodies with those um, who are most being affected. So... I've been thinking through all that stuff and my husband and I, we already know who is going to get arrested and which one of us, you know, can afford that more. And you have an um, arrest plan. We do. We do. Yeah. This is, I have never even considered having, okay. You got to tell that a little more about that. Yeah. It would be me because my husband is a therapist and, um, a conviction wouldn't look good on his record, but I'm just a freelance writer and ESL teacher. So I can have a prison sentence on my 
you know, on my record and it will wow. affect me less. So I will yeah. say I have been thinking about along these lines, but you guys are a lot more prepared for it than I am and are taking it a lot more seriously. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that that is not required of any of us. Yeah, I hope I'm wrong, right? And That's what I keep yes, saying. Yes, exactly. But we will see if it is required. Okay, you told a story in your episode. You had that co-volunteer in Minneapolis who had admitted to you that before she started working with refugees, she had believed that Muslims were in the U.S. to kill Americans. She'd been deathly afraid of them. She was changed by working with them. I had a Facebook interaction just today with a friend of a, a family member who I don't know personally, you know, I asked her if she would stand up for Muslims' right to worship, and her answer was, I don't think Sharia law should be enacted in America. And I said, well, I, I don't think it's on the ballot. Um, try not to be rude about it, but just trying to to see if I could get her to sort of agree that religious freedom is important for Christians and Muslims. And I, I haven't heard back on that conversation, but it reminded me of this story you told of this woman you worked with. Now that Trump has won, now that that storyline has essentially for the time being won the day. I mean, the Breitbart right wing narrative got more people to the polls than did the New York times narrative. If you want to, if you want to frame it that way, do you think that it is now less likely for people like that woman to have these transforming experiences working with immigrants and refugees, or might it in some way be more likely because of sort of the, the flashlight being shined on everything? Yeah, I mean, I actually think this could be good. My husband and I have been talking a lot about, um, you know, the movie Selma and how Dr. King specifically picked Selma to be a place where they protested because the sheriff was such... Uh, volatile yeah, racist he was so person, racist, right? Yeah. And so I'm like, Trump is that sheriff. So this could just rip the band-aid, right, off of the realities of what happens in America. And I think people are going to be shocked. And as much as like already on Facebook and whatever we hear people saying, just calm down, like everybody needs to be united and stop whining, you liberals. Like I've also heard stories of um, people like older people at Bible studies kind of really starting to ask, wait a minute, why are people freaking out? Why are people so scared? Like, we're mm. excited. This is this was a miracle of God. So why are people freaking out? And they were truly asking. And a friend of mine was explaining, you know, some of the reasons why people of color and women and, you know, minorities and LGBT people might be, you know, nervous. And she was telling me that a few of the older women said, you know, I voted for Trump and I think I may have made a mistake. You know, wow. I couldn't bring myself to vote Democrat, but I think I may have made a mistake. And even just if we could admit the reasons we were coerced to vote for certain people may have been done out of fear. We may have made a mistake. Um, I mean, I'm a little frustrated already. I've heard from multiple people who voted third party that said if they could do it over, they would vote for Clinton in a heartbeat. And just that sense of if people can truly listen to the fear. And I feel like the number one way to change people is if they hear from someone they know and trust a story of systemic oppression. I think that's the way um, to change hearts and minds. And I think it's going to get really bad. And I think it's going to change some people. And hopefully it'll be a Selma type tipping point. Um, like the whole world will will see how bad things are and we will be forced to reckon with it. And, and you know, 
my Christian view would be to repent and lament and move forward into reconciliation. So that would be my hope. If I can, if I can depolarize a little bit here, my thought when you were telling the story about those women is not so much that I want them to regret voting for Trump necessarily. I, I'm just happy that they were like, what are you talking about? Like, let me hear the story. Yeah, let me no, under- I think- yeah. That's, I think, even just being able to hear stories of people being scared or sad and not brush it away immediately. Like, that's the real takeaway. Like, right. that's what we need to do. I definitely. would be just as happy. In fact, I would be equally happy with someone saying, tell me why you're so freaked out. They hear the story. They say to that person, you know what? I don't think that's going to happen. If it does, I'm with you. You know what I mean? Like, that's really what we need right now uh, from the right is we need people to say, okay, I understand that you guys are afraid of what Trump's going to do. I don't think he was serious or whatever their particular opinion is. But if it does start happening, I'm in your corner. I will protect you. I will protect religious liberty. I will protect, you know, whatever, the, the interests of those at the bottom of society. That's that's what I'm hoping to hear from my conservative friends and from conservative leaders right yeah, now. Yeah, I, I guess my one pushback to that would be what do we mean when we say I'll stand up for you I mean I want to I want to believe that's true too but if you don't know if you're not in relationship with anybody who's directly experiencing that I don't know I mean that's a good question to think through how can we stand with people if you know to me the big takeaway is like right everybody lives in these really isolated places where people think like them act like them vote like them and the, I mean, I think this election proves it. And how do we change that? And I don't know, maybe social media will help. Maybe protests. Maybe we can listen to stories and get over. I don't know. I, I do think like the media bias thing is still going to linger and <laughs> yeah, and negatively impact us. But yeah, these are these are hard questions. But I, I think that, for instance, you know, if if Trump tries to register Muslims that might be the type of issue that would galvanize the church that most Christians could say, hold up. That's why we started this country. You can't do that. And, you know, have some official kind of popular pushback. I I don't know. I mean, it will depend on, it really will depend on where he goes with things once he's the president. Right. So a few final questions. What are you most afraid of happening with the Trump presidency? I just thought life is going to become harder for people whose lives are already pretty darn difficult. And just, I guess, the end of the world. (laughs) 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 I'm scared of that, too. Yeah. And what, if anything, are you most hopeful about? What are the silver linings for you in this dramatic turn of events? Yeah, I think it's just... You know, as a Christian, the church has always thrived in situations of oppression. And by the church, I mean like true disciples and followers of Jesus. So this is an excellent time for the wheat and the chaff, as the Bible says, to be revealed. I think for those who are truly following Christ and those who are, you know, captive to cultural Christianity. Um, So there could be some really good stuff that comes out of that. I... I'm trying to be more hopeful, but I'm, I am not quite there yet. 
<laughs> so yeah. know, hopefully in a few days sure. or a few weeks, I'll have a better answer. But For anyone listening who might be kind of wondering if they fit your definition of wheat or chaff, can you just give us a few principles that you would say, this is evidence that you are following Jesus? Yeah, I mean... The God I follow is a God who loves the poor, he loves the foreigner, he loves the oppressed, he loves the sick, um, and he always asks his people to take care of those communities. Um, and I think, actually, Dan, you've talked about this before, like, the Bible doesn't even talk about, like, one-on-one, I mean, they do, like, neighbor love, but also, like, nations should take care of the poor and the vulnerable. Like, that's just a hallmark of if a people are following God, that's what they do, Um and so to see a platform that kind of has all those opposite principles, right? <laughs> like, to me, it's just really hard to reconcile the fact that it was Christians who voted in a platform based on keeping people out, I guess, is how I would view it. When you talk to people, and I know you will, when you talk to Christians who voted for Trump solely or more or less solely on the issue of abortion, mm-hmm. What is it that you're going to ask them to be aware of going? Because it may, in fact, be the case that he does, uh, you know, put up Supreme Court justices that 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 movement would want. I mean, it is quite possible that on that single issue, they will see some gains. Now, you can refer to Matthew's episode uh, for a counter argument against that, of course, but it is possible. So even if you grant them all of that, what is it that you're saying to a Christian who that was their primary motivator? What should they now be looking out for? They got that. They got him elected. Now what is their job as an American Christian? Yeah, I would say just the fact that the KKK openly celebrated the election of Donald Trump means like we have to be vigilant about minorities and how they're treated in our country. And if we have a true ethic saying that all lives are valuable in the eyes of God, then we have to work extra hard to ensure that they're protected here, um, you know, after birth. All right. Nice. Anything else you want to say to us verbally process or, or encourage us in or scare us about? Yeah, Dan, I'm just so sad and I think it's okay to be sad. Um, I agree. So if anybody else is sad out there, I'm with you and, um, we will. We'll keep making art. We'll keep doing what we're doing. and But it's okay to be sad right now. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle, so much. Say hi to Crispin. And to the extent that you can, communicate to your friends in your neighborhood that there are a lot of us who have been really encouraged to hear their perspective, even though it's been filtered through you. <laughs> okay. Thanks for, thanks for following up, Dan. All right. Talk to you later. Next up, we've got Alan Noble. You will remember him from the first part of the third parties episode. He was the one who was arguing for Evan McMullen and who was a conservative who was pretty anti-Trump. So here's what Alan had to say about the election. So let's just start with your general reaction to what happened Tuesday night. Um, unbelievable, heartbreaking, absurd, and uh, deeply concerning. Um, had Trump won, 
And at least according to the New York Times exit polls, 81% of evangelicals not voted for him. You know, if, if a significantly lower percent, you know, let's say under 50% had voted for him and he still won, it would be much easier to accept. I mean, obviously, we'd still have to deal with the ramifications, the consequences, and those are real and need to be addressed. And um, But uh, there's a just a sense of, I felt the very deep sense of, profound disappointment uh, in people who I'm, uh, you know, who I call my brothers and sisters in Christ um, yeah. for voting for someone. And, um, you know, as, as someone who didn't feel like I could vote for, for Clinton, you know, I could, I could sympathize with them not feeling comfortable with that, but, but they didn't have to vote for Trump. Do you know what I mean? And, and, you know, it, because that's that's a positive statement, right? I mean, you, yeah. you know, the least it seemed like to me, like the very least you could do is say, "Okay, well, I'm not going to advocate for this guy," uh, and that that felt like a very low bar. And for them to just so many to not meet that was was disappointing. And I worry about the ramifications. There's all kinds of ramifications that that I'm concerned about. One of the long term ones is that. I think for uh, a large number of people, the old guard religious right has been validated again, maybe for another decade, because they picked the winning side. Um, mm. Even though it's not in the serious and, and most realistic sense, and I think the most spiritual sense, it's not the winning side, uh, it will still be perceived that way. And um, yeah. that's very concerning, not only for this election, but but moving forward, because the, this whole election was, was stressful and, 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 and painful. But the one solace I could have was that finally this group of leaders who had, had, had really been, I think, irresponsible were being perceived for for who they were. And I, I guess that's not the case. Do you feel like that is true that that's not the case? I mean, it's still true that most religious people under the age of 40 totally disagreed with those leaders. And that doesn't change. And in yeah. fact, most of those people are now in mourning and are wondering what will be required of them now going forward. I guess I, what I'm not sure about is him winning or losing. Did it real? I mean, did that really change the shift? It has been laid bare for what it is. I don't know if him winning makes a difference. Um, I, th I think some. I think this is going to validate something. You know, th there's um, sometimes losing is what you need to do to win, and yeah. you know, long term. And I've. I've I believed that that's what the GOP needed. I mean, obvious to, to me, it was very clear the trajectory that this was going, and the trajectory the religious right was going uh, revealed the sort of culmination of a long series of, of ideology and rhetoric and media that was toxic. And uh, you know, the good thing about losing is that it sometimes at least makes you take account. It makes yeah. you reckon. It can make you reckon with things. And there are a lot of people, in fact, including a lot of very well-respected people in the conservative movement who, you know, as soon as he got the nomination, were saying, okay, well, let's start reckoning. Let's, this, is, this is a disaster, so we're going to fail, so let's start the reckoning work. And 
And that was encouraging. And, and so I had hope that, you know, we lose an election and, and we maybe a little bit more introspective. And um, I've, I've told several people that I, I feel like one of the reasons I didn't see this coming was that I tend to have a little bit of too much hope in people, in this case, in the American people and in evangelicals, uh, especially white evangelicals. And, yeah. you know, I'm not sure what to do with that, but I don't want to be cynical. How did Evan McMullen do? In the final analysis, no, oh, I mean he did. You know, for someone who came in with like two months to go in the election, he did about what you would expect someone two months in the election to do. Utah was very surprising. Um, you know, there were lots of polls that it looked like they were all almost uh, in a dead heat, or maybe Trump had maybe just. 10% more than, than Evan McMullen and, and Hillary, but I think in the end, uh, a huge portion of those who said they were going to vote McMullen, I, I think they panicked and, you know, went Trump. And in fact, I think nationwide, a lot of, a lot of evangelicals, I was looking this afternoon at, at some surveys and polls that various Barna and Pew had done, and, and, and I didn't look at the fine details, but it looked like they were saying about you know, they were projecting or, you know, they were showing about 15% of evangelicals were going to vote third party. And that, according to the New York Times, it was 3%. So, right, right. Uh, you know, I, I think they just, they went in there and they decided, what if Hillary can win? And uh, yeah. apparently they calculated that to be the worst case. And so they, you know, so what if someone like you, someone who is like largely conservative, but has this compassionate streak, for example, you mentioned maternity leave to help combat abortion rates, which is a historically Democrat platform. What does someone like yeah. you do now under a Trump presidency? Yeah. So, I mean, this has been, I've just been under a cloud the last few days because of that very question and, and trying to think what, what does it look like moving forward? Because I still think that these, these problems haven't been addressed or these underlying problems with conservative media that, that foments um, r rumors and conspiracy theories that tend to target minorities and other groups for the sake of nationalism and clickbaits, you know, that kind of problem and all these other problems that, that are really uh, weakening both conservative parties and the religious right. But, but more important, you know, our neighbors, you know, it's, it's, it's unhealthy. So those, those problems aren't going away. In fact, it's the Trump presidency, to some extent, may embolden and probably will embolden them. And so... Yeah, it's hard to imagine Breitbart losing monthly yeah. viewers with Trump as the president. No, no, yeah, especially if, if, if Bannon gets like an official post and then the CEO of Breitbart is actually, you know, working for the presidency. I mean, he'll resign for Breitbart, but, you know, we know how that'll work. So it's that's that's yeah. horrifying. I mean, that's... Uh, all right, I don't want to get off on that tangent. But to, to answer <laughs> okay. your question, uh, I would say the job of public faith um, and the job of the ANC campaign, which is you know another group and e another evangelical group that I'm a part of, that is a political outward facing group, just got a whole lot harder because now there are going to be a significant number of evangelicals who would have said, I think we need to reassess and rethink this isn't working. Now they've been affirmed, and there are a lot of them going around thinking, we've got the House, we've got the Senate, we have governors, we have the president, we're okay. 
everything's going to be fine. And, yeah. and, and I just want to shake them and say, it's, first of all, it's not going to be fine. It, it's unlikely to be fine. You know, uh, uh, well, and, this goes into and my it's next probably question. actually going to, all right, give me your next question. Which is, what are you asking of your friends, your colleagues, your family who voted for Trump? And how are you asking them? Um, right now, there's not a lot of conversation, you know, to be frank, between yeah. those groups, in part because there's not a lot of open conversation because uh, there's there's a lot of tension. And, and I imagine my relationships with, with family and friends, I don't have many family who voted Trump, but I probably have some extended, uh, but I have, you know, uh, quite a few friends who did. You know, I imagine the tension I I'm feeling is far less than 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 I know many minority Christians have are feeling with with even people within their own church yeah. who maybe enthusiastically voted Trump, and that's that's a that's a heavy burden uh, that 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 I've not had to deal with. But but there is a tension. Like we don't neither of us really want to come out and say it. But what what I am uh, what I have said is that we need to. We need to do whatever we can to hold Trump responsible. And I know that that sounds, you know, that's, I mean, I'm very skeptical that they'll be much, will be very effective at that. But um, I'm especially calling, I have called on conservatives to pressure their representatives, to pressure to, you know, petition letters, emails, calling uh, and protesting if, if we need to, to come to that when he starts making decisions that are going to be harmful uh, to our country, to our neighbors, you know, if he starts trying to mass deport, uh, if he tries mass deportation, like we need to step up and, and at least try because the tendency is, and this is true within any movement, any group, the tendency is to resist self criticism. And so there's going to be a tendency for conservatives not to criticize Trump because that's that's how that's how movements operate. And we need to be self-aware of that and recognize part of this is on us and so we need to be extra cautious, extra willing to stick our necks out and and criticize and condemn and 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 ask for him to 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 you know oppose things and so I was going to ask you what we on the left need to be doing but it, it sounds like that advice applies pretty equally. I think that's exactly right. I think the best political posture, and this is actually a, a just, I think, uh, the best posture for Christians to have in any public discourse or negotiations or conversations, is to hope all things. And and by that, I think you, I specifically mean to desire the other person or people to change or to pursue something that is good and is good for them as well. So um, I think the conservatives like me who are extremely critical of Trump and liberals and people who voted for him need to hope all things and uh, actually work with and desire for him to somehow be a good president, knowing that we need to hold him in check when he's not. Yeah. The alternative, it seems to me, is, uh, is a kind of hopelessness. And um, even though this week that's what where my heart's at, a kind of hopelessness. I know that, that that's not that's not proper and it's not good and it's not you know it's not it's not helpful. 
Speaking of hope, you have mentioned a lot of things that you're afraid of, which was going to be my next question, but we've said enough of them and everyone else is going to say what they're afraid (laughs) of too. What are you hopeful, short-term, long-term, what are you hopeful about given this result? I am hopeful. The thing that I'm most hopeful about is the emphasis, the attention that, that is being paid to minority Christians who uh, need to be leading and uh, um, at least uh, part of the, the leadership of whatever comes next. And I'm very, uh, you know, specifically the leaders, the men and, and women in the AND campaign who, you know, in our private Slack group, if we, as we've been discussing this election, you know, the reality is that, that they are probably going to be affected by this election a lot more than I am. And, you know, it's been funny. I've received several messages from various people of, of encouragement after this election, and I'm very grateful because I've been pretty down. Um, but, you know, I've, I've stepped back and, and, and realized, realistically, this election might is most likely to benefit me materially. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about that myself. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's the reality. And and I don't want it to, but that's just that's just the reality is that it's probably going to b- materially benefit me and it's going to be harming at least pe- in the short term it will. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But these people uh, these uh, brothers and sisters in Christ uh minorities who I think have lots of reasons to be concerned were, you know, encouraging me and like inspiring me and saying, "Hey, our mission has not changed. We still have wow. these objectives, and uh, we need to be positive. We have hope." And so that, I mean, honestly, has just been blowing me away because I'm <laughs> and just humbling me because yeah, totally. I don't, I don't feel it, and uh, I'm starting to, and I'm starting to because of their witness, because they're facing this and saying. Wow you know, okay, we're going to, we've got this and we're going to keep moving forward. So that's what I have hope in because, you know, that's the kind of leadership we've needed. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. I don't know what God has in store, but I'm grateful to be a very small part of what they're doing. And, and I'm hopeful for the future there. Well, that gives me hope. And then I also want to say, what's a guy got to do to get an invite to that Slack chat, dude? Get me in on that. <laughs> I want to be privy to these yeah, conversations. Well, I know. Yeah. I know. Well, I mean, we'll thing. be. Yeah, I know. All right, Alan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we will be speaking more to you in the future, I know. Very good. Glad to do it. Thank you. Now, this last one is a voice you won't recognize because she hasn't been a guest yet but she's going to be a guest soon. Billy Ann Davis is a 75-year-old woman who has been working in racial reconciliation for decades. I met her at a interfaith, like, social justice-y thing in Seattle um, about a year or two ago, and we've kind of stayed in touch. And so we're going to hear from her in the coming month or two about racial reconciliation and what she's learned from that and how that might look uh, during a Trump presidency and what it's looked like before. But here I wanted to introduce you guys to her by getting her reaction because I think she's seen a lot more of the world than most of us have. And every time I talk to her, I am struck by her wisdom 
and her composure and her compassion. So enjoy this. I'm pretty sure you will. Here's Billy Ann. What did you feel like on election night? Just what was your own personal visceral reaction? Disappointment was my reaction. And I can tell you that people who know me know that disappointment is that one emotion that I absolutely, it is the worst one that I can feel. I just dislike being disappointed. And when I think of, well, with whom? With whom am I disappointed? I had to say Americans, the American people, and that's all of us. I just didn't think we took in consideration of enough things that are at stake. And I am disappointed because I think generations behind me, it will take them some time to catch up to where we could be as a nation. But we were sidetracked, I think, of looking at things that may not matter as much as the things that are at stake and if you want me to tell you one of the first ones that I see at stake, well, certainly one of the first ones that I need to start at. It's not the most important one for me, but I'll get to that in a minute. I think coming together is at stake for Americans. I think we pulled further apart in this election. And I'm very sorry to see that because we are one. We are one nation. And this did not help the way the candidates talked about each other, the way we didn't get to policy issues. We got more into personal things. And I saw the rise of some people I haven't seen rising in the United States for years. Those were the people who talked about uh, the different ethnicities. And that's different in the United... We have not done that out loud anyway for some time, but to be emboldened to come out and to speak against people of different ethnicities, that was very disappointing to me and very disappointing that Americans would accept that and elect someone who certainly seems to support that. So that was my biggest disappointment. Would you like to hear? Well, no, that was a big disappointment because I'm all part of that. But another one that here I'm disappointed. I wanted to see her win because I felt that it would be a signal to women, to young girls, to the little girls, to the in-betweens, to the adult women, that finally in America a woman could become president of the United States. A woman who has a wonderful work ethic, I think she's a hard worker, certainly knows policy, and was more than, I think, capable of filling the job. I was very disappointed that not enough of us saw that, that this could be a time of really changing to another perspective in America and letting young girls know that that is also the possibility for them. As a woman of color, do you feel like there is a particular message that this sends to you from the people of America? Well, yes, I do. And I tell you why. Anytime we would elect someone who has high praise from people who historically in America 
were very much against uh, people of color, against black people anyway. I grew up in the South. I'm very much aware of what that looks like. And not that all the votes for this president came from the South. They did not. But I do realize that there were many people who supported him because they really felt that he would be that person who could promote some of the ideas that I thought were buried or certainly, if they weren't buried, they were out of sight for a generation more. People were quiet about it if they certainly felt the prejudices and so many of the inequities that happen in the part of the country where I grew up. It seems like that ugly head was reared again during this election, and there wasn't enough pushback from this candidate for me to believe that he really isn't right with them. He was almost welcoming them, as I could see, and that's the way I interpreted it. So I'm disappointed in that. We have come so far, and for the nation to go back into that way of thinking, even a part of the nation, I don't believe that the whole nation is going to. I think there's so many good people out here, and of all colors. However, it only takes a small group to change things around. You look When I look at someone who shot Martin Luther King, that was one man who was out there. He had support, I'm sure. There was a, a lot of people who were not at all unhappy about uh, the death of King. But I look at what King did for this country. It wasn't just for black people. It was saying, listen, we have a constitution. We have to live up to this. This is what it says. That wasn't just about someone like me. And my God, it was for all of us. And we are much better off because we do pay attention to what was said there. There were some definite things said for our betterment when it, that Constitution was written. And we can't pick and choose the things that we will want to enforce and keep in place. I don't think this president, the person we elected to be president, I don't think he pushed back hard enough or used the kind of leadership I would like to have seen as an African-American to say, no, wait a minute, we're going to be in this together. He started with the Mexicans, he's then into the Muslim faith, people of the Muslim faith, and even people in that group who were supporting him to be president, they're near the end. They came out in talking about Jewish people. I was absolutely astounded. I could not believe in this day and time we're going to keep this going and keep talking about the different ethnic groups with no respect whatsoever for others. So I'm very disappointed there and I didn't hear enough pushback from the person that was elected as president. You've been living a lot longer than I have. Does this moment remind you of any other moments that you've experienced in in our history, or in your own history living abroad? Well, it does remind me of another era. I remember how sad I felt when uh, many people wanted Adlai Stevenson to win the presidency, and I was a young child, and I know a lot of African Americans wanted that to happen, but he did not win. And I remember coming home from school, and so many of them, of the older people, were sad, uh, and I cried as a little child, thinking, I went, well, I wasn't that little. I must have been, I wasn't a teenager yet, but I was still feeling 
for the other people in my community, the older African-American people who really were wanting change and waiting for change to take place and feeling that that would be the kind of leadership that would get it in place. But it didn't happen, and they were very disappointed. I feel very disappointed because... As I said, what I thought could be given to young people, first of all, to females especially. And I'm also disappointed because I've, I'm an Obama supporter. I did from the very beginning. And I, thought, I think that man gave everything he had to America as far as in that position as president of wanting to give the best and being there pushing forth the best for us. And I don't feel that now. I don't feel that it is for America's interests. With the person who has been elected for president, who wants his children even to be in charge of his, of, uh, his assets, and there's a name for it and I can't recall at the moment, but there's someone else who is to administer that uh, blind trust in cases like this other than the family. The family doesn't administer blind trust. As I look at this, and I was listening to someone today who talked about, well, this will be a great chance for the president because he can make laws that could affect his business quite well for generations to come. And being the opportunist that he is, why wouldn't he do that? I'm very disappointed that the American people haven't gone deeper than just the surface of things and I'm also disappointed in the disrespect that he gave to women. Oh, and I don't care whether it's women who are seeing this, or, and men. This is all of us who should have had some more concern, I think, than that. Do we want to elect people like that? Well, we just did, didn't we? We did. You mentioned to me earlier that you had a conversation with uh, a Trump supporter. What did you learn from that conversation about her? What did you learn about where she's coming from when you chatted with her? That's an easy one. I learned from her that she has very little information. She was basing it all on what I feel, what she feels about Trump, and what she feels against the present president. I should tell you, she is a white American uh, I've known her for years, we've had conversations for years, and I do like her as a person. But she doesn't have information based on the things to uh, support the things that she believes. For instance, she said uh, she likes Trump because she knows that Trump's going to be much better closer to Israel than Obama. Uh, this uh, woman is a evangelical Christian. And... I said, now, why would you say that? You know, what's the, what's the difference here? And she says, oh, well, you know, Obama just never liked uh, Israel. And I said, I did not know that at all. I am surprised, especially because of the amount of money that he has certainly signed off on appropriating to Israel, including the big dome that you know, I think is there for warding off nuclear energy that might come in trying to harm that country. I think he's been quite supportive. And I think that Israel certainly gets a large budget from the unit. We budget that in every year 
if it's not every year, it's every few years, is what goes to Israel for defense. Um, I haven't seen him ever block that, and I don't get why you would say, well, he does, she says. Um, <laughs> Trump thinks more of Israel than Obama. Well, see, to come after it from there, that's number one, that you do not know what another person thinks. Uh, we can't base it on that. And is that why you voted for Mr. Trump for president? Well, that wasn't the only reason. She likes his stance uh, on gun control, and she believes that if people want guns, they should have guns. And so she supports, very strong supporter of the Second Amendment, and my question is, are there any things about guns that you don't like in our towns and cities and things that he might support in helping us to have less violence? She couldn't come up with anything. And that's where, again, I'm thinking, how much then do you know about what goes on with guns in the United States? She was just a very staunch supporter, had made up her mind from the very beginning. And I had to ask about Trump's uh, religious beliefs, to, were they compatible with what she believes? Because she is a very strong Christian woman. And she says, well, he may not say it, but he is very much a Christian. And I think it was about that point that I realized what kind of conversation I was in one with very low information. And it's, you know, of course it's important to remember it's one person, it's anecdotal. Um, but it's still interesting to hear. So you have worked in racial reconciliation for a long time. Have you started thinking about reconciliation after his win, or are you still just trying to feel it, and are you waiting on sort of planning out how you're going to be a part of healing the divide that you see in the country? I'm waiting to see how I will, where I can fit in. I absolutely know that there's a message here within me, and some of your listeners will understand this, and I have a feeling you will <laughs> also. <laughs> the message that is within me was given to me. This is part of my purpose for being here on this planet, I do believe, and I say part of it because I've had so many opportunities meeting people from around the world of all colors, of all... It has just been a wonderful experience. Now, it didn't come because of wealth. It didn't come because, at the time, I can't even say education or it wasn't any of that. I had an understanding early on about this thing we call race, and I was curious about it. And it has just grown and grown and grown over the years. And I am looking for, yes, places to put it. I think part of it is through writing. And I do that whenever, and I get the opportunity to write, whether it's an article. But there is a book that's going to come. It's going to get out there also. <laughs> I feel obligated. And I feel obligated, be one reason, because I think it's a gift for all of us when we can let go of the past and connect with each other on a one-to-one, human-to-human level. It is so freeing and such a wonderful way to live. Anything that I could ever say or do that can help people to get beyond that things, the way race will box us in, I like to say, I'm ready. I'm here. I'll support you. I'll tell you what I know and point in directions that you might go of looking for even more 
information. But it's a freeing experience not to be bogged down by race. And it doesn't matter what color a person is. To be able to walk through that is a wonderful experience. What specifically are you most afraid of happening in America as a result of a Trump presidency? I think I am more afraid of us becoming more divided now. We were probably, I mean, I have a feeling we were divided during the Obama administration, but actually we're very divided. Look at what the Congress did. (laughs) Well, before Obama was uh, sworn in, Mitch McConnell said, and I quote, it is my job to see that he fails, unquote. Well, that's setting it up, as I see it, for a division, because a lot of us wanted any president. We want them to succeed because we will all benefit. I want Donald Trump to succeed at the right things, the right policies that will help America to be whole and, and do well now as well as into the future. Uh, I want that to happen, and I think one of the things we can do is to get beyond our individual whole things that hold us back and hold us in place, such as race, uh, and that wherever I see the opportunity to come in and to do what I do in that area, I'm going to be there. So I'm still looking for those places to come in. Well, we're grateful for that work, and that leads me to my last question, which is, What hope or silver linings do you see? What is this bringing to the surface? Is there anything that you feel positive about, even if it might be long-term, given Trump's election? Well, in four years, I certainly hope that more of us will see maybe a woman does bring another perspective to work whatever the work is, and it's just another perspective. It's not better than or less than, just another way of seeing things. So I hope after four years we will see that. I certainly hope after four years we will have a Congress that works for all the people and that works. Uh, I shouldn't say that just works for all the people. A Congress that will even work during this next four years will be wonderful because we haven't had that uh, in the during the Obama administration, I would hope that we could get to a place of recognizing, first of all, that America is already great. America has been a great place for as long as it has been. I would say even before the Americans from Europe got here, America was already great. America was great from, from time ever. It has always been great. Now, how do we keep it great and how do we make it greater? That's where we all come in, of looking at how we work together, how we support each other. How much do we really love our country, taking care of it? And that includes looking at the environment. What are we doing? Do we have to go this far in things or are we doing this just because we can, because we have so much? And we do have much, and that's to be grateful for, but to also make sure that we leave it in good hands for those who will follow. And I think that's a responsibility we have. Thank you, Billy Ann, for your time. And I know everyone is looking forward to your full episode coming out soon. I am so looking forward to talking about one of my favorite subjects, race. (laughs) I can heart a race reconciliation. I should tell you I'm really excited about that. Uh, I'll tell you 
more when we talk, and I'm looking forward to meeting your listeners on the radio. <laughs> Thanks, Philanne. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, you can find me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H. You can join the Depolarized Podcast discussion group on Facebook, or you can scroll show notes at depolarizedpodcast.com. And we'll see you next week.